thanks for joining us. My name's Daniel and we've got a great message for you um, today. We've got Craig, he's speaking on uh, our final on BEST and it's the BEST Church, what that looks like for us. Let's find out. This... Um, this is about the best church, being the best church, and uh, it's kind of interesting. I want to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and you might want to, in a while, follow that if you've got your iPhones and your Bibles in those. But that scripture, um, it's simply the best, better than all the rest. No, 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 better than anyone, but it's a great scripture to go to when you're trying to understand what the church is about and why. You know, when it comes to best, we all want the best, don't we? We want our kids. We want the best for our kids. We want the best health care. We want the best home. And, and for many of us, we want the best church. We want the best church. And one of the things that crossed my mind as I was preparing for this final piece of the best puzzle was it's really easy when you're looking for the best to think more about the better. If only we were better. If only we had what they have. That church over there has got great preachers. If only. You know what I mean? Or that church has got great music. Or they've got lots of people. They're at an unbelievable stage and the lighting system's phenomenal. It's easy to compare. But you know, when it comes to the best church, I believe that God wants us to be the best church that we can be. And the best church that we can be is the church that he has called us to be. It doesn't mean we don't borrow. It doesn't mean we look and learn. I've spent the last 45 years doing that. But God has put us here for a purpose. And the best we can be isn't trying to be like anybody or anything else. It's being what God's called us uniquely and differently to be. True? It's like people. We're always trying to compare ourselves to everybody else. And if you're always comparing yourself to someone else, you're only ever going to be second best, aren't you? You are the best person that you can be when you discover what God's called you to be and you fulfill that particular thing. Now, in 1 Peter, Peter writes the letter. It's the only letter he writes in the scriptures. And he's writing to a bunch of people, dis dispersed Christians who are heavily persecuted. And he wants to encourage them. And it's just a wonderful scripture. He uses a, a simple yet powerful architectural image to try and describe what the church is at when it's at its best. And that's why I've chosen 1 Peter 2. Just let's look at it for a little while. 1 Peter 2, I'll start from verse 1. Peter says, get rid of all evil. Get rid of deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Wouldn't we imagine a church without any Gossip, or a school, or any group, any malice, any negative speaking. Imagine that. 
That's what he's trying to get us to imagine. Then he says in verse 2, like newborn babies crave, that's a powerful word, crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And I love verse 3. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. How many of us know this morning? God is good. Do we know that? And I believe that God's, God heals. But God's not good because God heals. I believe that God transforms and saves, but I believe that God is good because he transforms and saves. I believe he created the world, but I believe he's good because he created the world. God is just plain good. He is good because everything that is wonderful, everything that is beautiful, everything that is honourable and worthy of praise is in God, in God's self. Does that make sense? God is a good God. And here's the thing. This good God invited you here this morning to come before him in his presence and worship him. How good's that? I was at a prayer meeting on Tuesday night, the one that that's got in Kathy's home, and someone in the prayer meeting said, I used to go to a church not far from here over, I think it was over at Mitcham somewhere. And she said there was this old fellow that was in the church, old, you know, 60, <laughs> no, really old, I mean 80. And he always wore his best suit, tie, shined his shoes and came to church. And they, they were a bit negative about it, the old codger, I mean, what? get with it. And then someone said, why do you do that? And this was his answer. He said, if I had an invitation for the, from the Queen to dine with her at Buckingham Palace, I'd dress like this. He said, on a Sunday morning, I go to church because I have an invitation from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and I want to be prepared. Now you say, well, Craig, why haven't you got your suit on? It's actually not about the clothes you wear. It's about your attitude. How many of us this morning thought, this is church. We go to meet with the creator of the cosmos, the one who formed all things. Am I prepared? This is what church is about. And then he goes on. God is good, he says. And then he says, as you receive his invitation, as you come to him, and he calls him the living stone. That's an unusual way for us to describe Jesus. Jesus, the living stone. And I thought about this and I thought, stone? What sense does that make? Except that I've really noticed that in our culture, wood and stone are getting ever more valuable. In fact, there's a shortage of wood that make furniture and so on at the moment. When people want to redo their kitchens, they get stuff like Caesar stone because they want the best. Stone for these people, the people's writing to, was so valuable. 
I mean, for them, in caught in the midst of a volatile, war-stricken context. They wanted to know that there was someone in this world they could hold on to who would not change, who was stable and fixed and, and, and could be depended upon. And so Peter takes the image of stone, the architectural image. He's not thinking about a pebble. He's thinking about a brick that would have been shaped and cut and used to build what they saw as their temple. And they said, Jesus is the stone. And as we've just said, Jesus is the cornerstone. The stone from which every other stone is measured. Lined up with. If only we knew what it was to live a life that was totally committed to, to aligning ourselves with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and I want to put the verse up, verse 5. Thanks, Indy. And stay with this one for a, for a considerable time. He says this about the church. He says, you also like, are like living stones. Get this, living stone, oxymoron. You know what an oxy oxymoron is? I once, someone once said that to me and I was highly offended and then I worked out what it was. It's two words that contradict each other. Some would say something like, I don't know, intelligent politician, oxymoron. Another one I saw, airplane food, oxymoron. One interesting one I've heard is non-practicing Christian. I still don't know exactly know what that is, but it's, I know it's an oxymoron. This is an oxymoron because stones are inanimate. They are lifeless. They are dead. But the good news is this. God takes the dead stuff. He takes the dead stuff in our lives. And he brings it to life. One of the misconceptions about the Christian faith is that it's a cosmetic change. That it's the icing on the cake. They're actually really good people. And the gospel comes in and just gives us a little lift. That's not what the Bible says. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, We were dead. Dead in our sin. And by the mercy of God, we became Alive in Christ. We are living stones. We are alive in him. He takes the dead stuff of this world and he brings it to life. When I was little, someone invented a thing called a pet rock. Does anyone... No, don't. This will betray your age. Some guy came up the idea with the idea... That you could have a pet rock, get a nice smooth rock, put some eyes in place and sell it. He became a multi-millionaire at that time. Because people bought it. Suckers. I was one. <laughs> Got one, put it on my shelf at home 
and felt proud of the fact that I had a pet rock. Someone needed to tell me the pet rock was dead, inanimate, lifeless. Stones are dead. But when Christ gets hold of our lives, our dead stuff becomes vibrant and animated and alive. In fact, the Bible consistently describes the living stones in terms of living gemstones. Again and again and again, the Bible talks about turquoise and opal and sapphire and diamonds. And God wants us to understand that we in Christ are beautiful, amazing, vibrant and life-filled gemstones. Now, you might say today, well, you know, I crawled out of bed this morning, got to church by the skin of my teeth. I don't feel like a diamond. By the way, all a diamond is is a piece of carbon under pressure. And most of us feel the pressures of life. But listen to what Isaiah says. And this is just one reference in the Bible for those living stones. God speaks to the people of Israel and he says, and he speaks to us. And he says, you're sad, you're discouraged. Anyone here ever been sad or discouraged? I wonder how many of us feel discouraged now. Tossed around in a storm. But he says this, and I love this. I, the Lord, will rebuild, rebuild your life with precious stones. Stones of turquoise. Biblically, that's a symbol of spiritual healing. For your foundation, I will use blue sapphires. Sapphires, godly favour. Your fortresses will be built by the rarest and most beautiful stone known in biblical times, which was the ruby, which is about divine creativity. Your gates of jewels and your walls of gems. It's amazing. When God sees you near, he sees you as a living stone, a living gemstone. But here's the miracle. God says, like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house. What God does is he takes these living stones with all their differences and all their, you know, each unique, cut and polished. But the miracle is, is that he takes these stones and forms a church brings them together, and they become God's people. God takes dead stuff and he makes it living. He's done it, always done it. In Ezekiel, there was a valley of dry bones, just dry human bones in a vision that Ezekiel had. And, someone's, and Ezekiel says to God, these are so dry and dead, can they live? And God says to Ezekiel, watch this. And he pours out his Holy Spirit on those bones. And they start not just to live, but they connect with each other. They come alive. And even a friend of mine wrote a book called Dry Bones Dancing. This is what God does with his church. He brings it alive. He creates a spiritual, what, what it says there, a spiritual house, a spiritual sanctuary. He brings people together like you and me. We're not brought together simply to coexist. 
We come together to be the people of God, shining and vibrant and alive. What for? Oh, just one other thing before that. He brings us together to be unified. There's no layers of speciality in the Christian life. There's no gold membership and silver membership and bronze membership. We're all in this together. I remember at the MCG in the cricket ground there, wandering around the ground. There was a slight sort of pause, slight boring spot in the cricket. Hard to imagine, I know. But I decided to go for a walk. And I thought I'd explore the ground. And the MCG is very layered in terms of its membership. And I went to this particular space that was, was, it was like I'd never been there before. It was the Holy of Holies. And I remember approaching the door and there was a seat by the door and there was an elderly gentleman on the door. He would have been about 135 years old, I reckon, one of the older members. And in fact, his head was down. I thought, oh, God, I hope he hasn't died or anything. But anyway, I walked towards this line that separated the normal from the Holy of Holies and I'm just about to step over and he came alive again. I heard these words, you will know, you will go no further. So I pulled back and I I thought, oh, I've only got my shorts and sand shoes and stuff on and I had a, a very faded hat. So I said to him, is it the hat? He said, yes. And the shirt and the shorts, and the shoes. You will go no further. You do not have access. I sheepishly walked away. But listen, too often, religion and the church has done exactly that. We've put separations between people and the people of God. When God takes all the rumies and amethyst and, and opals and everything and pulls them together in a beautiful harmony, there are no layers of importance. And then it says this, you're like living stones being built into a spiritual house. Why? Why? And he says something quite cryptic. He says, to be a holy priesthood. And we look at that and we think, everybody is to be a priest. And you sit there and you think, well, I thought a priest was this kind of professional religious person who dressed in weird clothing and was kind of between people and God so that I could go and to, that, to God through that priest. Nothing could be the further from the truth. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, a curtain was split. All access to all people were to God. There is nothing between us and God. We can pray to God, confess to God, talk to God. Sadly, that old understanding of priest persists. But in Christ. It says, we are all priests. Now, priests do two things. They mediate and they serve. The mediate is not between God and man. Mediates more like what we understand as an usher. The responsibility we all have as priests is to usher people into the presence of God and to ensure that there is no barrier, nothing that keeps people from the 
beauty and wonder and joy of knowing Jesus. That's your job as a Christian if you're a Christian. At uni, at work, that's what we do. And the other thing a priest does is a priest serves. So it says there, offering, uh, you're to be a, you're like living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. That's your service to God. Paul once said, Romans 12:1, by the mercies of God, offer yourselves as a, as a living sacrifice. And he had in his mind an altar and a sacrifice on that altar. We are called, every single one of us, to serve God and to serve the people of God and to serve the communities in which we're in. That's what a priest, that's what priests do. They mediate and they serve. In terms of service, I was just thinking, my friend Stuart, who's preached here in uh, Sydney, was inducted recently into the CEO of Wesley Mission, which is a massive organisation nationally and so on. Some of you might know Stuart. He's a good friend. We were actually going to go to his induction in Sydney, but we couldn't because of COVID restrictions and everything. But we watched it streamed. And uh, at, at, towards the end, he had a chance to say just a few words. And he said something that, that has stayed with me for a long, and I think will, uh, for a long time. He said, I'm not called to a platform. I'm called to an altar. I thought myself. So easy to want a platform. So easy to be called to something where you, people see you and you're shown like this. The internet can be a platform too. And at the moment, the obsession with being seen is, is, is phenomenal. As Christians, we're not called to a platform. We're called to serve and to love and to be ushers of people into the presence of God. That's what this is about. And you know, at the end of my notes, because when I preach, I just do these notes. I put there, I wrote, in my, when I first read this, I put, there has to be a cost. And I thought about it, and I thought about it. I thought, cost? Serving is not a cost. Serving is a joy. And I was challenged by that three years ago when this church started. Kay and I were over near the library and we used to have a coffee machine, surprisingly. And it was big and it was heavy. And we didn't have the wheels. And so I'm on the end of this coffee machine lifting the thing and it is heavy. And I said to Kay, who was on the other end of the coffee machine, why are we doing this? I'm, this is confession time. Why are we doing this? And I thought to myself, for 45 years, since I became a Christian, I've, I've, I, it was a pity, excuse me, I'm going to have this little pity party. I, I, I've, I've tried to build the church. Coromandel Valley, youth groups, children's ministry, and on and on and on. I remember the days at Aberfoyle where we, we had so few children. I remember the days at Coray when we had so 
little youth. It was at 45 years, and I, and I was saying to God, I think I deserve long service leave. Why am I carrying a coffee machine? And I had a vision of sitting on a porch in a rocking chair with you know, one of those nice quilted knitted things over my legs, watching other people do the thing. I'm supposed to be retiring, aren't I? Let me tell you something. You never retire from discipleship. And frankly, I don't want to. Because I don't find it a chore. I don't find it difficult. It is a joy. People are looking for joy in selfies and, and self-promoting opportunities. Can I say to you, you'll never get joy doing that, but you will only ever ultimately find the joy in the joy of serving others. If only we could understand that in our culture. Friends, the best church is the church I want to belong to. And the best church is made up of living jewels and precious stones like you and me, with all our gifts and abilities and all that God's called us to be. The best church is when those precious stones uh, are built up together into God's people, the church. And the best church is the church full of people who are not manipulatively or forcefully, and that's why I like the word usher, but giving people access into the presence of God and serving him with all they have. That is a great church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that this morning you invited me and other precious stones in this room to be in this place. I thank you, Lord, that we don't, no matter what age we are, look towards a dead end, but that we look to life eternal, a life with quality and purpose and joy, a life that sparkles and is vibrant, a life that serves and loves. Most of all this morning, Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he gave his life 2,000 years ago, that he paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could find a life here and now that is so rich and free. Come, Lord Jesus, fill us with that life, I pray. Teach us what it means to be the church. Not the church that I want, but the church that you want. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that concludes our, uh, our series on BEST. Really looking forward to what's coming up next. And thanks so much for joining us.